Thank y'all. Good morning. Um, someone asked this morning, was I nervous? And I think I'm only nervous because I'm worried this mic is going to come on while I'm singing <laughs> before I get up here. Um, look, it's good to be back. It feels like it's been a while. I think a couple of weeks ago, I got the chance to go with RJ to orientation at Ole Miss. We went early and got to worship there at the church in Oxford that uh, we're excited about uh, him being a part of hopefully the next four years. And then as uh, Luke mentioned, this past week we were able to, uh, we had the privilege of worshiping with Stephen and his congregation at Grace Church there. And it was, um, it was a real blessing. And so uh, churches know that people we're sending out and uh, the planners that are uh, out there are, are doing great things and are being faithful to the kingdom. And so it was super encouraging uh, for us. This morning, we're going to look at 1 John chapter 5. Uh, we're going to be just in the first five verses um, here. And so I don't typically, uh, even on Wednesday nights when I, when I teach there, I don't title sermons necessarily, but this one I felt like uh, I would call birthmarks of a Christian. And so I want us to look at some of these marks of a Christian this morning. And while you're turning to 1 John 5 at the very end of the Bible there, I want to tell you a, a, about a time when our little RJ, right, who's not so little anymore, uh, as, you know, evidenced by having to go to orientation with him, but if I talk about that too much, we'll be weepy for, I'll, I'll go Jason on you really quick, so, uh, but, uh, but he got upset about one of his birthmarks, or in this case, maybe a lack thereof. Uh, most of you see RJ a lot. He's here every week. He's setting up. He's doing those things. If you've ever seen him more than a couple times, or really if you've seen him next to Sharice, okay, there is really absolutely no doubt that the boy looks a lot like his mama, all right? And we have pictures from when they were each toddlers that you really can't tell them apart except for maybe some fading discoloration on one of the photos. We won't talk about which one that is. Um, but when he was about four or five, I think, uh, there had been this point where a lot of people had really started to tell him over and over again, oh, RJ, you look just like your mom. This was my family, his family, our friends, everybody was telling. And I guess the kid just finally reached a breaking point. And so someone said something to him, and he broke down crying like sobbing apparently. I wasn't there, but Sharice said, she asked him, said, RJ, what's wrong, bud? And he's like, I don't want to look like my mama. I want to look like my daddy. So even then the kid had good taste, right? So I'm just saying this, all right? Sharice had to explain to him in that moment. She said, hey, but you may look like me, but everything else about you screams your daddy. Like, he acts like me, he thinks like me, he talks like me, he carries himself like me. I can remember a time there was a, uh, uh, I think he was playing soccer, maybe middle school, high school, I'm not sure. But I looked up, and, and he's standing on the field, and he's got his hands kind of like this. And he's sitting back, and I'm like, what's wrong with this kid? Like, that looks kind of effeminate. Like, what's, what's he doing? Like, and a couple of weeks later, I was at football practice, and I was standing here, and I was saying something to somebody, and I looked down, and I thought, well, I know where he gets it now, right? So the bottom line is this. RJ had this deep desire to be like his dad. And as children of God, I want us to see this morning that we should be desperate to look like our father. We should be desperate to be marked in the same way. People should be able to watch us, to spend time with us, just to get a general sense from being around us that we're like our heavenly father. 
And if I'm honest to you this morning, I struggle with this sometimes. Right? I doubt myself. I forget who I am as a child of God. And I, I forget that I belong to him. But John reminds us this morning how we can remember that we are children of God and what that means for us. So we're going to read 1 John 5. I'm going to read these first five verses here. It says, everyone who believes that Jesus is the Christ has been born of God. And everyone who loves the Father loves whoever has been born of him. By this we know that we love the children of God, when we love God and obey his commandments. For this is the love of God that we keep his commandments, and his commandments are not burdensome. For everyone who has been born of God overcomes the world, and this is the victory that has overcome the world, our faith. Who is it that overcomes the world except the one who believes that Jesus is the Son of God? And when Luke asked me to, to, to preach this morning, he told me 1 John 5, so you can do the whole chapter, you can do whatever you need to. And I, I was like, okay, we'll knock it out. We can get the whole chapter done. And I got on these first five verses, and Luke and I were putting floor down Saturday morning at the, at the church, and I was like, bro, I'm stuck on verse 4. Like, I just, I, I'm stuck there where it just says this, this victory that has overcome the world is our faith. And that was just so powerful to me. So I kind of hung out in those first five verses, and that's where we're going to be this morning. I really want to look at three things, okay? So the first is this. To have the birthmarks of a Christian, you must be born again. Right? So, so to have birthmarks, physical birthmarks, whatever else, like you must be born. So it makes sense, like just like your typical physical birthmarks might show up at your physical birth, even sometimes they show up a little later, it might get darker, they might get bigger, whatever it may be. These Christian birthmarks show up when we've been born again in Christ. And this phrase, I think, is important right here. It says that uh, everyone that has been born, that implies this is a continuing condition, right? Like we have, like he, everyone who has been born, like we are continuing to be born again. It's this continuing state or this continuing uh, uh, condition of being born again. But, but what exactly does it mean to be born again? Well, simply put, being born again means having a belief in Jesus as the Christ, that we believe that Jesus is who he said he was, right? And so uh, if we look at John chapter 1, verses 12 and 13, I think it's on the screen. John writes this, but to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, like, like who, who believed that he is who he says he is, he gave the right to become children of God, who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. So we see there, by believing in his name, by believing that Jesus is the Christ, the Messiah, that he is who he says he is, we are given the right to become children of God, to be born not of flesh, right, but of God. We go back to uh, Nicodemus, right, in John 3, where he's super confused. <laughs> like, uh, I don't think this is possible for Jesus for me to be born again. And Jesus explains to him, this is about being born of God. And this, this condition of continually being born again is also what allows us to believe continually. Right? We see here, <clears throat> because being born again is continuous, that our believing is also continuous. These are simultaneous, ongoing things that go hand in hand. Being born again also means that we have a new nature. We, have this, we now have this enduring 
tendency towards righteousness. It doesn't mean that we don't sin, obviously. What it means is that now I understand what my sin does and that it separates me from a holy God. And I have this tendency to go back towards righteousness because of my new nature. 1 John, excuse me, 1 John 3, 9, uh, just back a couple of chapters right there, says that no one born of God makes a practice of sinning. For God's seed abides in him, and he cannot keep on sinning because he has been born of God. See, we can no longer abide in sin. Our new nature doesn't allow that. Someone who's born of God can't keep sinning because God's seed now abides in him. And God and sin can exist in the same place. So we can no longer continue to sin. We're, we're, we're now marked, if you will, as believers. We look more like Jesus. And looking more like Jesus really is about three things, right? It's, it's a right belief, it's a right love, and it's a right behavior. Okay, so this right belief is sort of our doctrine, but what I want you to understand this morning, church, is hear me when I say this. There's so many people that talk about uh, uh, our religion or man-made things, isms, if you want to call them right, that people tie into and believe these things. Doctrine is not about that. Doctrine is about a person. It is far more about who Jesus is and what we believe about him. Do we believe that he is the Messiah? Do we believe that he is the Son of God? And understand that our doctrine, our right doctrine, is believing those things far more than it is about believing something that man made up. Our right love is this kind of this moral condition that we have. Are, are we loving God and allowing our love for others to stem from that love for God. And then looking like Jesus also is about our right behavior. This is our ethical, social aspect of this. Do our actions and our words reflect our new nature? How are we caring for the last and the least and the lost? So to be born again, right, what, what does this look like? And how does this show up in the life of a believer? Well, I think first we have to confess Jesus as the Messiah. We have to confess that Jesus is who he said he was. And then we have to then give witness to others that Jesus is who he says he is. We obey his commands. And I love this, this section in, in verse 3 right here, the end of it, where John says, and his commandments are not burdensome. I think that's so good, right? O obeying commands doesn't typically bring a lot of, like, if you're like me, you don't like to be told what to do all the time, and you feel like commands or things that someone is, like, enforcing on you that maybe you don't want, but this says that his commands are not burdensome. This is not a chore. This is not a task that we see. This is simply us taking great joy because our new birth, our new nature now makes this the natural thing to do. John Piper <clears throat> says this, he says, what you desire to do with your whole heart is not burdensome to do. What you desire to do with your whole heart is not burdensome to do. And I just, as I read that, I thought, man, this is so true. I think about the things in your life that you have a deep desire to do or a passion for. Like they, they might tire you out, 
They might exhaust you. You might lose sleep over them. You might worry about them. All those things may be true, but they never feel like a burden. Because it's what, you're, it's what you've given your whole heart to do. You've set your whole being on that thing. You're passionate about that. So it never feels burdensome. And if our whole being is set on living in harmony with Jesus Christ, then we'll never feel burdened by his command or by his will for our life. <clears throat> There's a secular song, right? And one lyric says this. It says, why is the best fruit always forbidden? Don't look it up. But as I thought about that, I, I, I thought to myself, this is, this is how we so often view God's commands. Like, church, we know and we believe that God sent his one and only son to die a death that we couldn't die and to pay a price that we could never afford. Yet we, for some illogical reason, we just tend to assume that God's holding out on us. Like God's holding something back from us. And we so easily look back in Genesis and we see the fall and we condemn and make fun of and poke fun at Adam and Eve for eating the forbidden fruit, for making a mistake that we continue to make today because we think the same way. Like Satan today, the enemy today, manages to get us to believe the same lie that he sold to Adam and Eve in the garden, that Jesus is holding out on us. We think somehow that God doesn't give us his best. He's keeping it from us, right? He's not allowing us to enjoy the best things in life. His commands are burdensome because we haven't given our whole heart to Jesus. But guys, his sacrifice for his son, the sacrifice of his son on the cross for us tells us a much different story. And through our new nature in Christ, we have to see that what God has for us is freedom and not burden. Like what God has for us is for our good and not for our detriment. That what God has for us is life and not death. We can go back to Psalm 1. We, 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 we teach that so much here. And I would encourage you, I think Jason preached a while back and just encouraged us all to go memorize Psalm 1. I would encourage you again to go do that. But we can see in Psalm 1 the blessed man he finds his delight in what? In the law of the Lord. Psalm 119, the longest chapter in the Bible, is written about God's word. And we see it referenced, God's word, God's law, God's, God's command. However, however the, the phrasing is in different particular verses throughout Psalm 119. But we see over and over again the psalmist writes that God's word, his command, his law is delight. Over and over again, one commentator I read said this, said, loving God rightly, therefore, is not just external behavior and an outward obedience. It is a longing to do his will from the heart out of our gospel gratitude for who he is and what he's done for us in Jesus. This is convicting. He said, it is not an I have to obedience. It's an I want to obedience. So my question this morning is, do you have to or do you want to obey God? So we see that, first off, that to have these Christian birthmarks, we have to be born again. And Secondly, I want to point out that I think the most noticeable birthmark that we have, the most notable Christian birthmark that we have is love. It's our love for God and it's our love for others. 
And Luke taught this so well a few weeks ago, so I'm not going to dwell a long time here this morning. But I will remind you of this. The one thing that God desires most is that we love him. Jesus even says that in Matthew 22, right? He said it's the first and the greatest command, and he follows that up secondly, right, with the command to love others. We're called here to love the Father and to love the family he's building. John says the ones who are born of him. Right? We give witness concerning God by loving him and by loving his children. And, and when I read verse 2, I'll read it again. It says, by this we know that we love the children of God when we love God and obey his commandments. And I read that over and over again because I'm like, I think John got it backwards. I think it's, it's out of order there, right? Like, like we know that we love God by how we love people. And I think I just got too caught up in that. Basically, some commentary I was reading just described this as this idea that these two ideas are companions, and they go together. That when we love God, our love for others shows up, and that when we love others, it's because we love God. Our love for others and for God is not only an indicator to the world that we belong to God, but it's a great assurance for us, a great reminder for us that we are his children. And the third thing I want to come to today is this, where I really, really kind of got hung up on is this. It's that being born again gives us continuous victory over the world. Many times we'll have uh, reporters at our football game. And after the game, we win, they'll come over. Uh, hopefully we win. For this purposes, we're going to assume we win. They'll come over and they'll say, Coach, uh, you know, what do you think was the biggest reason you guys won tonight? And, you know, I obviously want to say, well, me, right? But I don't um, because it's never the reason. But this idea is I want to give an accurate and honest answer. Because I'm telling you, I know coaches give cliche answers, and cliches are cliches for a reason because when you don't turn the ball over, you win a lot of games. When you play good defense, you win a lot of games. So I try really hard not to be cliche, but it's far more difficult than you would ever, ever imagine, okay? So just don't judge me when you hear those cliches. But I do think in depth, as they're asking me these questions, like, okay, who or what or what play or what event in the game do I feel like had this huge role, this large role in us winning the game tonight? Because I do want to give them an accurate answer. I do want to be honest. I do want to give credit where credit's due. And we'll give credit to a particular player, maybe to a coach, maybe to a, a, a play or a scheme or a plan that my coaches came up with that week, or maybe some combination of all of those things, right? We, we want to attribute victory to the one or the ones that we believe made that victory possible. And so John, right here in this passage, clearly says that it's possible to overcome the world, to have victory over the world. And so it made me think, if, if someone came to us, someone in the world, right, not in the church, someone in the world came to, came, came to the world and said, look, I, I have achieved it, I've done it, I've gotten victory over the world. Like, what would that look like to the world? What would the world assume was happening? Right, like for us, we might think back to Sunday school and be like, oh, that's Jesus, it's victory over the world, right? But what would the world say to that? And my thoughts were kind of like, you know, right now, it, Luke mentioned the events in Texas, and, and it's a devastating time in a lot of areas in our world. Someone might say, oh, I've, uh, I've, I've, we've done a better job with, with gun laws, victory over the world. Maybe I've ended abortion. Maybe I found some law or some way, abortion, no more abortion, it's over. 
maybe I found a way, I get all the, the rotten elected officials out of office, and I put new ones in there, victory over the world, right? Maybe even some church people might say, well, if we could get nightly revivals all around the globe, right, it would signal victory over the world. And, and, and I want you to, you know, whatever you believe in, fight for that. You certainly have a right to do that. I would encourage you to work to make changes that you believe in. But this isn't a political statement. This is a declaration of victory. This is a victory declaration. John doesn't say any of those things. He doesn't talk about things of the world. He says that our faith is victory over the world. Like, are you kidding? Like, our faith, like, my faith, my faith is victory over the world. It doesn't seem right. I'm just going to tell you a few things I mentioned earlier. I struggle with my faith. If I'm being honest, I often doubt that God can actually use me. The sins of my past or my present sins. Like, God, how are you going to, like, God, how are you going to use me? I sometimes doubt that I belong to God. I thought about it like this. My faith is probably as small as a mustard seed. But I don't feel like it's moving many mountains. If I'm just being honest, maybe it's, it's just me. I would never have had the audacity to claim that my faith is victory over the world, but John clearly says that here. And let me explain this. It's not because John had some second revelation that God was like, Reynolds is going to be a phenomenal Christian, bro. He's got elite Christianity skills. He is going to knock it out of the park. No, John knew that his faith and the church's faith, that my faith was in Jesus. And that's where the victory comes from. I don't want to scare you, but we're going to look at Revelation for a second. I promise you I'm not going to scare you because I'm not brave enough to do that. But in Revelation 12, verses 7 through 11, I think it's on the screen, it says, Now war arose in heaven, Michael and his angels fighting against a dragon. <laughs> I want to stop here for a second. Dude's fighting a dragon. A, a dragon, okay? This is not a lie. We were, we were in New Orleans last week, okay? And so Sunday after church, we get back from... from uh, uh, working on some benches there uh, at the cafe, and I get a text from my volleyball coach, and she's like, hey, just FYI, there's a snake in your office. Now, I don't know how well you know me, but I don't do snakes. I'm not like, oh, they're good snakes. They keep bad things. No, no, no. Snakes are the bad things. Kill them all. I, I'm, I'm, I'm for that. Like, that's victory over the world, right? Um, but, but here's the idea, all right? So she texts me. I, I just texted her back. I said, please, God, tell me you're kidding. She said, no, I'm sorry, I'm not. Uh, so I called her. I was like, what, what is going on? She's like, well, we were practicing, and I heard the girls in the locker room screaming, and I said, what's wrong? And it was a snake, and so we tried to kill it, and we chased it out, and it went in your office, and nobody has a key to your office. I said, are you, like, you're for real? And she said, oh, I'm, I'm 100% for real. I said, well, how big was it? She's like, I was kind of lengthy, it was fat. And I was like, okay, do you have any idea what kind it was? She's like, no. So I immediately sent a text to my family and I said, hey, we have to move. <laughs> because either, either I'm resigning and taking a different job somewhere else where they don't have snakes in my office, right? Or I'm burning down the school and I'm going to jail for arson because one of those, and we're not going to be able to afford our house. And then I sent a text to my principals and I was like, hey, we got some options here. Send somebody in to get the snake. Right, I'm resigning, or, or we can burn down the school together. I don't care. And they were like, what? what's going on? So we sent our custodian. I got a picture of it right here. Our custodian goes, this, this, is the, this is, guys, it's tiny. 
This is, it looks bigger because of the screen, because I actually widened it out some. I, I, I went in my office when I got back uh, Wednesday, and, and I just, every time I was sitting there, I kept worrying about something crawling across my feet. It was, it was, it was terrible. But guys, but Michael is fighting a dragon, not a snake. We're going to go on here. I'm sorry. The, it says, and the dragon and his angels fought back, but he was defeated, and there was no longer any place for them in heaven. And the great dragon was thrown down, that ancient serpent who is called the devil and Satan, the deceiver of the whole world. That's why I'm scared of snakes, guys. Listen to that. He was thrown down to the earth, and his angels were thrown down with him. And John writes, And I heard a loud voice in heaven saying, Now the salvation and the power and the kingdom of our God and the authority of his Christ have come. For the accuser of our brothers has been thrown down, who accuses them day and night and before our God. And they have conquered him by the blood of the Lamb and the word of their testimony. I hear that. The dragon was defeated and thrown down and conquered by the blood of the Lamb and the word of their testimony. What do you believe about Jesus? If you believe that he is who he says he is, that he is the son of God, then know this, today his victory is your victory. The word of your testimony, your faith has the power to slay dragons. Your faith is victory over the world. Guys, Revelation has some scary stuff. (laughs) Seriously, our faith is victory over all of it. Every unimaginable creature Every dragon, every beast, Satan. Jesus' victory is our victory. We can overcome today in the present because he overcame our only enemies of sin and death. And we can continually overcome the world. Our faith is victory over the world. We show this faith by our belief that Jesus is the Christ. That we are able to overcome the world through our belief in the one who overcame the world first. John 16, John writes, I have said these things to you that in me you may have peace. In the world you will have tribulation. But take heart, church, I have overcome the world. This belief makes us children of God. And that leads us to write living before a holy God. Another quote from Piper, he says that faith sees that Jesus is better. That's why faith conquers the world. The world held us in bondage by the power of its desires, but now our eyes have been opened by the new birth to see the superior desirability of Jesus. Jesus is better than the desires of the flesh and better than the desire of the eyes and better than the riches that strangle us with greed and pride. Adrian Rogers says that faith in faith is just positive thinking, but faith in Jesus is salvation. Church, faith in Jesus is life. Faith in Jesus is victory. If you put your faith in Jesus as the Messiah, as Savior, as the Christ, then you've been born again, and you have the birthmarks of a Christian. As we've been granted the right to be called children of God. We've been given victory over the world, victory over death. 
as believers, the same victory that allowed Jesus to conquer sin and death is our victory today. I read a series of questions from Charles Spurgeon, and I want to kind of paraphrase those some today. The band can go ahead and start coming up. Um, I just want to ask you a couple of questions, and, and, and you're going to have to find some honest answers to these for yourself. Do you firmly believe that Jesus offered himself as the one sacrifice for the sins of all mankind, and that, and that by that offering, he made a once and for all offering that completely atoned for all of our sins? Do you, do I accept his atonement for me? And I, do I grasp his death as my only hope and rest for forgiveness of all my transgressions? Is Jesus, who is now exalted in heaven, who once bled on the cross, is he king to me? Is his law my law? Do I desire entirely to submit myself to his government? Do I hate what he hates and love what he loves? Do I live to praise him? Do I, as a loyal subject, desire to see his kingdom come and his will done on earth as it is in heaven? If you can earnestly and genuinely answer these questions in the affirmative, then you are a child of God. If you are a son or daughter of God, of the true king, then walk in victory today. If you're sitting here today and you know that you're not a child of the king, of the one true God, let me encourage you to come talk to someone today. A few of us will be in the back and we'd love to pray with you and talk to you about how to become a follower of Jesus. Today's the day that you can trust in Jesus as Messiah, as your personal Savior, and be given the right to be called a child of God. We're going to take communion this morning. We've got tables set up around the room. And you don't have to be a member of Covenant Church to partake in this, but you do have to be a member of God's family. If you're a believer, you're welcome. I want to encourage you to spend some time here at your seat uh, as the band plays, just considering all that God has done for you and thanking him for the victory that we have in and through him today. Maybe today you aren't a believer. We ask you to just sit this one out, but we'd love for you to come talk to us about how you can become a follower of Jesus. I'm going to pray. The band's going to play, and you guys can come when you're ready. Father, I thank you for the victory that we have in you today. And so many of us, we walk around unsure of whose we are, doubting that we belong to you, sometimes doubting that we love you or that you love us. God, I pray that this victory that we have in you would be a constant reminder of how much you love us. It would remind us that we are nothing without you, but with you, we can conquer dragons. We can overcome sin and death and the world. The evil that we see in the world right now is devastating, certainly. But God, because you overcame, we can overcome. God, I pray for strength and reminders of that victory. Those here today who know you, who, who love you, who, who consider themselves children of God, I, I just pray right now that you, 
would remind them of who you are and of whose they are. God, for those who sit here who may not know you, I pray that you would draw them to you right now, that you would remove the scales from their eyes. They would see you as Messiah, as Savior, that they would believe, Jesus, that you are the Christ, that you are who you say you are. You always were, you are now, and you always will be. Father, we love you.